Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. How about some midweek madness? Hello and welcome to episode 28, yes 28 of the Real Football Cast. I'm your host Dan Tracy and the next 60 minutes we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual we'll be discussing what has been going on in the Premier League over the past few days. But in addition to that there are also off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. Joining me tonight is the return of Matthew, our guest, well I guess yes he's our resident Fulham fan. And I guess, well you'll be glowing after Tuesday's win won't you? Yes, absolutely. We haven't had a lot to cheer about in a long time, so it's good to finally get to finally realise what a win feels like. <laughs> right, we'll discuss a bit more on that, well, actually quite a bit of that later on. But first, before I chat all things football, i best do some social media bits first, otherwise I'll be talking to the Abyss once more. So, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at StanTracy1983. Anything show-related, send it my way. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. And if you use that platform, then don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Acast. While the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. As you should know by now, the Real Football Cast is sponsored by Loserpool. And what is Loserpool, I hear you ask? It's a new game that sees betting turned on its head, with a focus being on the loser. If this has grabbed your interest, then be sure to visit loserpool.com and create an account, especially as there's a new prize pool which guarantees a winner £1,000, but now it's free to enter in this one, so it's free to play. There's nothing stopping you. So the odds of winning are great, but they're even better if you sign up. Right then, it's time to go live. And we'll start with the fact that the top race hasn't necessarily been blown wide open as such, but it's certainly seen a couple more twists and turns over the past couple of days. So, first up, it was Man City's defeat to Newcastle, and that was one that had Liverpool fans ready to pass on their well wishes to their former boss, Rafa Benitez, after he masterminded a huge upset. So, Matthew... Just why exactly did it not click for City, especially after the, you know, they went up 1-0 after, what, 25 seconds or so? So where did it go wrong? Why did they not have that usual swagger and rhythm that we usually see with a Pep Guardiola side? Um, I honestly don't know. I think this could just go down as one of those freak results that we, that we so often see. Like, even Manchester City, when they were... Yeah, at any point in Manchester City, now they've got their riches. There's still that, that those odd results that make you think, "Hang on, how the hell's happened?" And you just you just can't explain it. Like when they went, I think it was in I think it was in Pep's first year when they went and lost four one or four nil away at Leicester. It's just you can't expect Manchester City to turn up and win five nil every single week. You just put this put this one down just one of just one of those days. Maybe if you want to add a little bit into it. Um, on the Newcastle side, because you know they won the game. It's not all about Manchester City losing. Absolutely, Newcastle yeah. did win the game. Um, maybe there's just a little bit of atmosphere around Tyneside that just got um, with all the protests that have been going on, and this was the last game before the transfer deadline window. And maybe it was just a whole combination of things on Tyneside that you know it was more 
what Newcastle did rather than what Manchester City did. Because Rafa Benitez has frustrated big sides before. Like he famously, um, there was that whole, I think it was last year, well it must have been last year, when they went to uh, the Etihad and parked the bus and got away with a 1-0, and only only got away with a 1-0 defeat, and we were talking about it for two weeks on end. So maybe it's just credit, all credit to Rafa Benitez for putting together a brilliant game plan that, kept Manchester City at bay uh, to such an extent that you know, they, they've only got the one goal and then it's only on Newcastle uh, to get to get the goals themselves, which which they obviously went and did. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, you just sort of take my next point in terms of Rafa Benitez because he got absolute pelters, didn't he, last season when they met and he sort of played that super defensive tactic and it was, I guess, almost like a theoric victory of, well, we only conceded one. But you're absolutely right. It, it was a debate that went on forever. It was a case of, well... Should he be playing better, better, more expansive football? Is he entitled to shut up shop as much as he did? So do you think he learnt his lesson and thought, do you know what, obviously we're not going to go toe-to-toe as such, but let's be a little bit um, forward-thinking. And perhaps they also grew in belief the longer they kept it at just one. Yes, yeah, ex- you know, exactly that. Um, once, as to, uh, For as long as you can keep Manchester City at one, you know, well, any team at one, you know, you've always got you've always got a chance. Then there's always that, you know, slight, slight bit of luck with, um, you know, Matt Ritchie's uh, penalty and just the sheer you know, nine, uh, just a complete uh, brain lapse by. Oh, crack. I think it may have been the port that gave the penalty away. I'm not 100 percent sure. Fernandinho, wasn't it? Fernandinho, so don't know why I thought the port. I wasn't. I wasn't watching the game 100. percent But anyway, um, no, just one of those. Just one of those things that you know. Next time he he'll be a lot more switched on, and you know uh, he'll have better peripheral vision and won't and won't give that sort of uh, give that sort of penalty that sort of penalty away. So it's a combination. It's a combination of things. Uh, the sort of, that's sort all of led to the result. It's not. It's not just one thing. You can't really pin it down. You can't really pin it down to one thing. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, like you say, it also does a disservice to Newcastle because it's not a team losing. A team still has to win. And I think, you know, Newcastle was obviously their best performance of the season so far, you could say. So in terms of City, losing that game, they would no doubt been expecting the worst because they've lost and you think, oh no, Liverpool playing the next day. It's a gap that could go to seven. So that would have taken place had they beaten Leicester. Thankfully, though, for City, um, it's only five. So... They would have, I guess, if they did watch that game, they would have thought, oh, here we go again. Because Sadio Mane scored after two minutes. And did you feel sort of, it's a case of how much Liverpool wanted to score? Or did Leicester always have a chance of getting into the game? It was, again, it's just been a weird week, really, isn't it? So how did Leicester manage to sort of match Liverpool last night? Um, I honestly don't know. Again, similar to, similar to Man City, it's just one of those things like how... How did we get to this stage? It, it shouldn't. It shouldn't be like this. You know, when Matt, you know, Liverpool go up within within three minutes, I think it was, then you you expect the flood. You expect the floodgates to open. But maybe you know, Claude Puel's been uh, again been under a lot of criticism for the way he plays his football. It's not entertaining. It's you know, grinding out results, so on and so forth. So we shouldn't really be a hundred percent surprised by the result. To an to an extent, if this was, you, you know, the the Premier League's basically divided up into into three tiers. There's the top six, there's the rest, and then there's those fighting for relegation. So, and Leicester City are sort of in that the rest pile. So it, it's not as if Liverpool, uh, you know, drew against Huddersfield. Leicester are a, are a somewhat decent side and do still have very decent players. And you know, the, their goal came through Harry Maguire, who I've said for a while is arguably the best the best centre half in in the country alongside Virgil van Dijk. So it's not as if that Liverpool were playing you know, no were playing a bunch of nobodies. Leicester are still a very, very good side and on their day and plus if you want to uh, put an intangible to it, you get also to an extent say the weather as well is is always a great equaliser. You know, it, the pitch was a bit wet and sort of slowed the place uh, slowed the place down a bit. Obviously, Liverpool can't counter-attack or attack in any way, shape or form in the same speed that they normally do. So, it's a, combina- a combination of those two things. The weather and Leicester exactly not not exactly being um, pushovers to, to some extent. I guess you could also say that it's Leicester, once again, saving their best against the very best because they've beaten Chelsea, they've beaten Man City. So, like I say, it doesn't 
because of those big results, it's not the biggest surprise. But, I mean, at the same time, Leicester could have won the game because if you look at the chances they had, they had Madison's header in the first half, which sort of looped awkwardly around the post. And then you had Damari Gray's decision to shoot instead of playing Madison in in the second half. So, will they come away disappointed by the fact they just got a point? Or is that a point well earned against the league leaders? Um, I Well, seeing as they went... You know they were went one nil down incredibly early. I think they'd see it as a there's a point well earned. It's not as if they, you know, they were two nil up and then squandered. You know, we're going to touch on it later. You know, like Burnley away at Man United. It's not as if they were in a good position and then threw it away. They were constantly chasing the game. And as you said, had a couple of chances, but you know they'd they'd have taken a point at the start at the start of the game. So I don't think I'd be too disappointed about coming away about coming away with only a point. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. <laughs> but in terms of Liverpool, do you think they should have had a penalty in the second half? I mean, I think it was Mane who got clattered. I can't for the life of me remember who. Um, but it's one of those ones where you think, do you know what? I've seen a lot given for a lot less. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, pers- I personally think it was was a penalty in this ever-changing world of uh, no one knows quite what a penalty is these that's days. Right. But yeah, I... In my, it, in my position of watching the replay, I would have given the penalty. But in the position of the referee, uh, no idea what he saw or didn't see, as the as the case may be. Uh, I'm. Just, I think I said on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. I'm sort of done debating about the uh, quality of referees because we. It's it's got to a stage where there's nothing until VAR comes in. You just got to grin and bear it and just accept. The, these decisions, these decisions are going to be wrong. You know, just wait a couple more months. That's all you got to wait, and then finally we'll be able to get to the bottom of all these decisions when VAR comes in. Yeah, we're nearly there. In terms of Liverpool, though, do you think they'll look at last night's result as an opportunity missed to really turn the screw on City? You know, take up to seven, or will they still be happy at the fact they've at least managed to get it up to five? You know, is that uh, you know are they being sort of greedy by thinking oh you know if we get to seven, or is it still just putting the pressure on City because it's still a little bit more of a gap? At the top of the table, um, but they'll they'll be disappointed to an extent because it's still um, uh, one and a half game cushion, as it were. It's not they they can only afford to lose two games. Whereas if they'd have gone seven points, then they'd have had to have lost a third game ahead of Manchester City. So obviously they'll see it as disappointed, but. At the same time, it is still five points. They still do have that one game in hand. I saw, I can't remember who tweeted it. Um, basically, there are 14 games left. Liverpool need to win 12 of them. Basically, if they're to match Manchester City, and that's assuming Manchester City win all 14 games they have left. And you know that Manchester City are going to stumble somewhere down the line. So Liverpool can afford to stumble somewhere down the line. I'm trying to think who they're tough games are they've got to go to Wade to Stamford Bridge or off the top of my head I don't know but yeah back back to the initial question yeah they'll be disappointed that they didn't get it to seven but at the same at the same time five it's not it's not as if they've thrown the lead the lead away as it were it's still very much in their hands oh yeah absolutely and I think like I say if you if you keep adding a point every third week then you soon could be up at seven eight anyway so like I say City have obviously shown they're not this superpower that they were last season they are not going to be sort of necessarily winning 14 in a row that'd be some heroic sort of streak to really make the league title interesting so it is still very much in Liverpool's hands and even more so with that additional point but if we look at the race for the top four now and the biggest headline must be Chelsea's capitulation on the south coast last night Bournemouth picked up a win at the Vitality Stadium perhaps not the biggest surprise but the magnitude certainly would have been a 4-0 win for Bournemouth so again Sari says that his players are struggling to get motivated, but is it perhaps he who is now the problem? Um, I, d- I don't want to put I don't want to put too much on Mauricio Sari because it is it's still January in his first year, so I don't think he can quite get to the stage of lost the dressing room in what six months that he's been in charge. I, d- I doubt it's got I doubt it's got to that stage yet you know in the same level as it was with Mourinho or at either of us Chelsea or Man United with Jose Mourinho um again I don't want to go back to I don't want to be making the same points again but you could just put this down to just one of those days again Bournemouth have shown that they're not exactly pushovers they've got some incredibly young young good players no David Brooks I speaking as a Welshman absolutely love the fact that he's tearing teams 
apart. It's great to see. And it shows why, again, you know, put some things on board, but it's not all about Chelsea. It showed again that Eddie Howe is probably, to some extent, being held back by Bournemouth. And that's a bit harsh on Bournemouth, but, you know, Eddie Howe is, you know, can manage sort of at a, above the level he's at sort of thing. He He's obviously got a good, he's got a, a future in the game, as it were. That's the roundabout way of saying. But yeah, back but back to Chelsea. I, again, I just, I, I just can't say exactly what it is. If um, they were so, if it is whole about Mauricio Sarri, then the fact that they won against Spurs in the FA Cup and won and won against uh, Nottingham Forest in the league. No, Sheffield Wednesday, sorry, in the league in the FA Cup. Um, he's not completely given over. It's it's just the league form that seems to be that seems to be the issue, and quite why it's just the league form that's the issue. Again, it's just one of those questions. I don't think any of us have the ability or the know-how to answer. I read uh, today that he actually has a habit, or he does um, have training sessions on match day. So, and that's something that's taken a real umbrage by the players. They're not enjoying this. So, could fatigue have played a part in that? Considering they have played a lot of cup games lately, that also asks the question: Why is he doing this? Because it's not as if he's rotating the squad in any way. You know, you've got the likes of Ruben Loftus-Cheek, Hudson Odoi. Andreas Christensen, who was sort of chomping at the bit to play and not really getting the opportunity. So surely it's either make use of the squad you've got or stop flogging your players on match day before you've even played a game. Yeah, that's a new that's a new insight. Um, thanks very much. Thanks very much for telling me. I learn something new every day. Yeah, absolutely. I think fatigue. If if that's what he's doing, then fatigue absolutely can uh, can play a, can play a part in it. And but but if this is something that he's done throughout his career. You know, he's he's had a very successful career up to this point. So maybe there's maybe there's something in the players. You know, maybe it's to some extent a bit of an aging squad. You've got David Luiz is certainly not young. Asper Quetta is still getting on a bit. Ngolo Kante is probably burnt out a bit, uh, having played and the way and the way he plays, running about all over the pitch. Plus the summer he had with France. Yeah, I, I suppose fatigue could could play a bit in it. And then yeah, but. And then that sort of get, gets counteracted by when he plays the uh, rotation side in the cup against Sheffield Wednesday. Um, they they come up, they come away with a good result. So yeah, maybe fatigue is a thing, and it's probably something maybe he can address going forward. Maybe th- that's why he's got Gonzalo Higuain in, you know, somewhat a new face. Um, he's going to have a, to some extent fresher legs, and maybe can adapt to the system a little bit better than the likes of Giroud, or maybe that's something. Maybe that's why Morata wasn't firing. Maybe he doesn't have the level of fitness to keep up with the style of play. Maybe Gonzalo Higuain will. I mean, reports yesterday said that Sari locked the players in the dressing room for 50 minutes, and the coaches were told to just wait outside, and, like they're not welcome. So whether it was Sari just firing out, you know, lamenting for 50 minutes or whether it was a discourse between the players as well, giving backwards and forwards, I guess we won't really know. But is it a case that Chelsea players are perhaps dropping tools again? Um, being, you know, When they're actually told to do something, they seem to sort of not really like being taken to task. So is it a toxic environment within the club? Is that rearing its head once more? Um, again, I don't want to say that it's turned toxic in January. I, 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 I can't believe that it's been that bad uh, that bad a turnaround and you know there's still some there's still some stuff for Chelsea cheer they're in the final of the league cup so there's a chance to win silverware so I'm sure they'll get they'll get motivated for that maybe it's just the fact that it's it's December now now January there's nothing really going on it's not like it's not it's not like they're in Europe or you know they've got something to, to take their minds off it, maybe it's just maybe it's just a lack of imagination. And when it comes to the end of the season, when they're progressing through the Europa League and they're getting through the FA Cup, and they'll uh, be on a fight for fourth place, and they'll have something to aim for. Maybe that's all it is. Maybe they just don't have a target in mind until you know back towards the end of um, in the last half of the season. It would have been getting through the Europa League group stage. It would have been getting through the League Cup stages, whereas now they've actually got a target and something to aim for. Maybe maybe that's all it was. Maybe it was just a lack of motivation. Um, maybe Mochisari was right. The fact that they're only playing league games now, it's just somewhat dull for them. Yeah, it's a fair point. You could also counter that or add to that the fact that now they're fifth. 
it's like, right, we've got to pull our finger out and get back into the top four. So that might be the spark, mightn't it? So, you know, I think that's a very fair point you make, Matthew. But again, let's not just focus on the fact that a bigger team has lost. Let's focus on the fact that, you know, there's been a good result, a good win. And that was obviously Bournemouth. You just touched on David Brooks. And that was going to be my sort of question. He was one of many stars last night. He will arguably get the most, uh, most plaudits, sorry. So the Cherries, they have a real player on their hands there. And you get the feeling they're going to struggle to keep him out of vitality long-term if this rapid career trajectory continues? Um, yeah, but then again, it's going to be a case of who does you know, who's going to want to come in and, and buy him. You know, do we see, you know, if this long-awaited move for Eden Hazard eventually goes to Real Madrid, do we see David Brooks filling in Eden Hazard's spot? I mean, he's a good player, but no. Um, do we see him playing off Romelu Lukaku at Manchester United, maybe if you know Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, uh, if that fits the way he plays, he's not getting into Spurs' side at the moment because it's you know, it's still Kane, Ali, Eriksen, Son, when everyone's uh, back from injury, of course. He's so he's not getting into there. Arsenal, maybe, but again, in, in, uh, he'd have to take a Bamiang's place, probably not. Uh, Liverpool, maybe, but again. He'd have to displace one of the front three to probably. So I don't think there's really much of a chance for him. And if Bournemouth just keep doing what they're doing and staying in the Premier League, not being in any big relegation battle, then what? Then why would he leave? What? What exactly sort of career progression is there? If he sees right, I'm going to you know be on the bench for the most part at a big six side or play regularly in a mid-table Premier League club. Then why then why why would I leave? What's what's that? Unless of course he goes abroad with these, you know, as we've seen this uh, influx of uh, young British players going abroad, the likes of Jane Sancho, Reverend Matondo. Uh, I think Reese Oxford was being linked to somewhere yeah, today. He's today. Yep. He's God. I, I knew he was linked. I didn't know if he went. Uh, maybe there's maybe there's a move abroad. Maybe there's a move abroad for him in the you know, maybe somewhere in Germany can maybe utilize his talents a lot better. One of the uh, one of the clubs over there, maybe in Spain. I think he, I think, I think he found quite well. Maybe go and join Juventus. Maybe take Ronaldo's spot. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it it all depends on sort of the time frame and who's in charge and what the sort of domino effect is at each particular club as to whether whether or not he moves. Yeah, do you know what? that is a fair point actually, and I think you can make the same sort of case for for Callum Wilson. That kind of you can either be playing week in week out at a Premier League club when you're fit or you might be getting splinters on the bench at a big six club and it's all about what do you really want I guess but you actually just reminded me of a question Rabbi Matondo he's obviously Welsh I don't know a great deal about him but he's joined this sort of German exodus what can you tell us the listeners about him because he's quite a precocious talent one who's sort of tipped for big heights in the next sort of few years so can he reach those heights has he got the potential to go all the way um, he has, he absolutely has a potential. He's a, he's a nice little player. Hasn't had the, uh, uh main, uh, the main, the first team rather game time than, uh, that maybe some would have had at other clubs. But the fact is he's going to, is the fact he's going to Germany and the German clubs have showed that he, they're going to give him game time. He's not going to be, a, he's not going to be a constant bench wall or go to the under 23s. The Schalke are going to play him and they obviously have faith, faith in his talent. And the thing is, if he if he doesn't work out, at least we'll know that that he doesn't that he doesn't work out at a certain level. Maybe it was maybe it was a move too early, but you know at least he's taken the chance. At least he's taken the risk. He's not going to be sitting in the Manchester City under 18s and under 23s for the next three years waiting for his chance. He's going to go there and he's going to get a chance to show his talent. If it turns out that you know, as I said, it's a it, yeah, the move was too early for him. Then maybe you know he'll go to the Schalke under twenty three squads and you know maybe develop there. But at least at least he's been given the chance to show whether and whether or not he can make it, rather than being you know backlogged and being the sixth or seventh choice player at his position as he would be in Manchester City. Yeah, I think all credit to him. I think anyone who's prepared to sort of make this move to German football, I think you know I think it's the smartest decision they'll make to be honest because they could always come back to the Premier League they could be much better for it like you say you know it's all like we just mentioned career, career trajectory with David Brooks obviously he's getting the minutes that his talents deserve and I think the fact they're going to Germany and doing that and I think more power to them and I just it's good that young English players are taking a chance because I think in the past generations 
or not, you know, not generations, but you know, say five, ten years ago, young talent has been accused of just collecting the money in England and thinking, you know, okay, that well, that's me done. I don't really need to sort of hit the potential that I can get to. So I think anything that sort of um, develops those kind of players is can only be a benefit to British football as a whole. So yeah, exactly. And 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 even if he and again, even if he doesn't succeed over there, at least he's a at least he's given it a go. And B, he'll have learnt another style of play. It's something that you know. Uh, all the pundits when when England would go out to major tournaments is you know they've they've only ever played uh, the British style of play they're not used to playing at the speed or the technical ability of the Spanish league or with the efficient passing ability of the of the German players in the German league sort of thing so at least he's going to learn a new style of play and even if he doesn't make a success of it over there he can maybe bring some skills back that he learned into the Premier League and then uh, utilize and develop it there. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So let's move back to sort of the Premier League view. I don't want to work just down the table. Let's mix it up a bit. So that gives you the perfect chance to talk about Fulham. So Matthew, Tuesday night, not the ideal start you would have wanted as Glenn Murray put Brighton 2-0 up with two um, first half goals. You must have thought, oh no, here we go again. So just what was the spark exactly? Because four goals is quite the comeback. That said, you had an incredible amount of efforts, I believe. So it wasn't a case of just, you know, taking what chances, you know, in isolation that you had. You absolutely battered Brighton from what I saw. So, yeah, where did that spark come from? Um, there's been a lot of theories going round as to what it is, but the main one seems to be that uh, during half-time, the players basically turned to Claudio Ranieri and said, your method is not working. Because this, this wow. was a team that was built and the players were bought um, to play the Slavisa Jukanovic style of way, which was possession-based, um, quick counter-attacks, whip the ball uh, whip the ball into Mitrovic to, to head the goals there. And basically, Claudio Ranieri's style of give them the ball, give them the ball, absorb the pressure on counter-attack, low possession, basically wasn't working. So the theory is that the players just basically had a, I don't want to say a mutiny, but turned around and said, hang on, this clearly isn't working. We're going back to how we played under Jukanovic, um, maybe with a few tweaks in with your system uh, brought in, like Alan Chambers playing defensive midfield instead of centre back, whatever. And that's basically the that's basically the thought behind it because it's something that's worked in the past when we were struggling in the 2010-11 season under Mark Hughes. A similar thing, a similar thing happened where the players just went, "Your way isn't working." We're going back to the way we played under Roy Hodgson. And then we finished from 19th on Boxing Day. We finished 8th in the Premier League. So that's the theory going behind what sort of happened last night is that's the spark. That's the moment where he said, no, we're going to we're gonna take over uh, from here on out. And everything just clicked perfectly. As you know, as you said, it's not just the four goals we scored. It's the fact that we absolutely battered them in the second half. We could have we could have had more. Uh, Jean-Michel Siri hit the post. Uh, Matt Ryan, the their goalkeeper, made a couple a couple of decent saves. Um Sergio Rico, our goalkeeper, probably had the turning point because after we'd got to two all, he made a brilliant save yes, to deny Glenn right. Murray his hat trick. And then a couple of minutes later, we went down and took the lead three two. So it's one of those things. Uh, turn the momentum, um, as, turn the momentum as quickly as that. I honestly could go. I could go on for two hours about just how bonkers this this <laughs> Fulham game was, and quite how quite how it happened. I'm not 100 percent sure, but it does. As you said, it gives us a bit of a spark. And when you think about who we've got coming up next it's crystal palace minus wilfred zaha after he got after he got sent off i'm sure we're going to touch on that later yeah um so yeah so this kind of gives us a right we got one win crystal palace without zaha we know that's not the greatest we might just be able to get something going here but you know but that that's the that's the that's the theory and that's the thinking behind. It. Obviously, football's not played. Football's not playing. People are going to have to. We're going to have to see. But it just does give us that idea of if we've been playing like this, the whole season and like basically the second half against Brighton and the first half against Spurs. If we'd have played like that the whole season, we wouldn't be in this mess. It's just the inconsistency of it all is what is what's got us in in this situation. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, actually, well, my next question was going to be that it's easy to say that that win could be a pivotal moment, but you have to now make sure that decent performance or, you know, those 45 minutes 
it's not just something in isolation. You've really got to build on that now because you've sort of found a spark. It's now you've got to ignite it and see how you can sort of close that gap because I think it's six points now, isn't it? So, you know, it's not just, okay, we've beaten Brighton, back to back to the drawing board. It's like, right, we've beaten Brighton, we've got to use that momentum. Yeah, abs- yeah ab- absolutely. Hopefully that's something Claudio Ranieri's take- taken on board. And I... Uh, if we're being and if I'm being brutally honest, I wouldn't change anything in the squad because what you don't want now is for that side that finished the finished the game and ended so well. Um, it ended up in a sort of four three three formation because we start off with five at the back. You now don't want. Hang on, we've got something here. If we play this way, the way we did forty five minutes, we play that the rest of the season, we could do something. We what you don't want then is for Claudio Ranieri to go and buy a um, a defensive midfielder say to replace Callum Chambers and move him to centre back. Say you don't we have we have this idea. This is probably our best shot. We don't want to change anything right now, which is why I'm hoping we don't do anything overly drastic in this as we record two and a half hours left of the transfer of the transfer window. Talking about Fulham and the transfer window, AK forty seven has departed to Turkey on loan. Bloody hell he was a bit of a live one, wasn't he? What on earth was going on last week when he got arrested at the training ground like He's just a bit of a bit of a character, one might say. Yeah, a bit of a character. That's 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 the best way to say it. We, you know, we've known that he's a bit of a, he's a bit of a fiery character, yeah, uh, and, and not just a fiery character, but a character nonetheless. The fact that he specifically wanted the number forty-seven when he came here, so that he could have AK forty-seven. It, it, it's like Mario Balotelli. We should have known from that moment that things went wrong. But the thing is, he doesn't come across like that. He comes across as a bit, a bit of a tough guy on the pitch. But all the stuff that's happened with the fallout of with the fallout over the penalty, which I think has been blown way out of proportion in in my mind. And this whole training ground, if you believe it, the players have come out and rubbished the story. If it happened, it happened. If it didn't, man, nah, I'm not overly gonna. It's just it's just taking us a bit all by surprise. Whether or not he's a bad egg in the dressing room, the the only way we'll find out now is uh, he goes to whatever club it is over in Turkey. I'm not yeah, even going to try and pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to try. If if things turn out there, then we'll know it was then it was um, the club. Uh, it was him. There was a problem. If things all work out hunky dory, then maybe there was a couple of um, issues uh, in the club that maybe maybe got in his way more than more than himself. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting way to look at it, actually, that if he keeps getting into scuffles wherever he goes, then you know he's a bad egg. But if it's just, he takes the turkey, you know, like a duck to water and starts banging the goal, you think, oh, hang on, there might have been something behind the scenes. So you never quite know until it develops. So we've spoken about your team. Let's talk about my team, Spurs, quickly. From a neutral's point of view, I guess that result against Watford would have been very important because not only in the race for the top four, but also the fact it's halted any talk of the wheels falling off and all that. Because obviously going out of the cup, or two cups in the space of a week, um, what do you make of Potch's comments that Tottenham have been victims of their own success? Um, I think I, I think there's some level... Hang on. Success? I thought the whole point was that Richard Pochettino isn't a success because he hasn't won a trophy. So well, that's a he, bit of... he's saying that they're victims... <laughs> I guess it's relative success because you're absolutely right. Yeah. We haven't won anything, so you can't really be deemed successful. That, I guess that's the measure if you're using Champions League football as the yardstick of success, which again is another debate. Do Tottenham... Are they right to just be putting all their eggs in a top four basket and a poster to going for the Cups? Because it was quite obvious on Sunday that changes were made for Watford in mind. So... Although we won, I guess the ends justify the means, but it's fired up that debate of what's more important, winning trophies or just being in the Champions League every year. So, obviously, for the Tottenham, it's a very raw point, but what do you take from it from a neutral view? Um, yeah, I think I think there's some... Uh, back to the issue, but I think there's some level of uh, credibility to that is now that you know, everyone's expecting Spurs to keep moving on and on and on so there is some level there is some level of pressure on them to succeed and you know when you have these injury these injury um injury hits they're, they're obviously gonna back uh, take you back somewhat and i 
was right and I believe I was right in saying that all you need to do is wait for don't worry about Harry Kane just wait for Hyungman's son to come back he'll come back and save you and I believe I was right on that I really believe I was right on that point yes, and you would be fine with and you'd be fine with Fernando Lorente and lo and behold it looks exactly what happened my only one concern about this is um with Hyungman's son is there not a level of, you know, we talked about earlier, is there not a question of burnout, maybe? Oh, absolutely. The fact that he yes. was rushed back from the Asia Games and now is sort of needed to uh, cover for Harry Kane and Fernando Llorente. And uh, again, we're going to assume that in the, in the next two and a half hours, uh, Daniel Levy's not going to sign a strike, uh, a centre forward slash striker to take some of the weight off. So it is going to be very much Llorente and Son heavy. But on Honeyman's side, is there not a worry of the fact that he's going to be playing so many games and this is just going to affect him. You talked about fatigue towards the end of the season. Uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right in the sense that last night he went down with cramp. As soon as the final whistle, he just collapsed. Um, he wasn't even meant to be on the pitch when he scored. Poch just said to um, his assistant staff, like, we've got to take a gamble. We're 1-0 down. We've got nothing left. You know, There's no plan B. So he'd done a, a full shift and you have to be really, really careful now because if he breaks, like we are doomed. So I think it's... It's not, you know, kid gloves and such, but we've got to be really, really careful in what we do with Sun. So, um, from an outsider's point of view, do you think they can be fine against Newcastle and Leicester as well? Because we've got them both at home, so it's three home games in a row. Do you reckon Tottenham could get a full nine points uh, sweep from those three? Um, yes, I, I, I believe they can. Um, it Honestly, it depends which Newcastle, which Newcastle and Leicester turn up. That's right. As we've as 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 recent results have shown, but overall, yes, absolutely, uh, Spurs should be able, should be able to get nine points. And I think this, I I think Spurs are probably going to coast towards the end of the season and out out of the ti- out of the title race as much as it is. And there's just such a big cushion between them and the team in fifth that it's long as long as nothing catastrophic happens then they're going to get into the top four so it's literally just to get so literally the only thing spurs have to look forward to this season because they're not winning the champions league either sorry um is just waiting to see if that move to the stadium does indeed come before the end of the season or not yep again i don't think that's going to happen but that's a a story for another episode so let's uh, go to um old trafford now because Spurs' win would have been important in the race of the top four, although at the same time, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has shown that he's, you know, he's mortal because his winning streak's finally come to an end. Uh, I guess rather surprise opposition because if you were a betting man, you'd have been absolutely bugging in midweek because not only have had the coupon busters that we've just mentioned, there's also Burnley getting a draw at Man United. So um, at one point, it looked like Burnley were going to get all three points. However, it was almost a comeback of the Sir Alex Ferguson era. So what did you think of Jesse Lingard's penalty decision? Was it a bit soft, or with Henrik putting his arm on him, has he got every right to go down in the way he did? No, as soon as I saw that, I said, "Now nah, that's a penalty. Um, it, it was one, in my mind, it was one of the more clearer um, penalty decisions um, of, of the week. If he'd have just sort of tapped him on the shoulder... And Lingard had gone down, then you could have understand there been a bit of a bit, but you can see that Hendrick more or less does drag him down. So I've 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 no complaints about uh, giving that uh, about that penalty being given. And uh, talking of Burnley, I mean, it looks like they've turned the corner. I think, well, to be fair, they have really because eleven points from the last fifteen on offer, unbeaten in the last five, three wins and two draws. Would you say that Sean Dyche has looked at what's happened in the first sort of thirds of the season or first half of the season? I thought, you know what? Right, we just need to go back to basics. Starting with at the back, Tom Heaton in goal. I know he's obviously been injured, but as soon as he's fit, get him in. And now all of a sudden, the Clarets are playing to their strengths once more. And it's no real surprise that they are starting to get points back on the board. Yeah, exactly. You know, they're playing playing to their strengths. You know, Burnley. uh, Burnley under Sean Dyche are always going to be similar to Sam Allardyce's Bolton uh, team. Back fifteen, uh, back fifteen years ago, you know they're not gonna, um, they're not gonna win much. They're not gonna um, be battling really hard for relegation. They may get a, a couple of weeks being scared towards the bottom, but you know that this side is a very, very good, capable Premier League side. So as long as it all guns are, you know, all guns are firing, then um, then they'll then they'll always be safe. As long as as long as they've got a fit, a fit and healthy team. Yep. Uh, what do you make of Peter Crouch uh, coming back to the Premier League for Burnley? Bit of a weird one, that. 
Yeah, if I'm being brutally honest, I thought I honestly thought he'd retired because I <laughs> all this stuff because he does his own, he does his own podcast. Right, I yeah. honestly just thought I honestly just thought once he'd gone down, I just thought he I honestly thought he retired. I didn't know he was still playing until I think he scored for Stoke at Shrews at Shrewsbury in the FA Cup. Other than that, I honestly. I forgot. I forgot. Who's the thing? Good on him, though. At the age of whatever it is, about thirty-six, thirty-seven, 38, I'd imagine. Thirty-eight yesterday. Thirty-eight. Even more. The fact that a Premier League club wants to come in and wants to come and uh, side him just shows that he's obviously still got something in the tank. So, full credit to him. And I think he's either going to, if he scores, he either ties or breaks the record for most Premier League goals scored with different clubs which is Craig Bellamy with seven so that's that's going to be one of those fascinating things to see towards the end of the year wow it's just that just that one graphic on match of the day Gary, you know Peter Crouch uh, ties record with Craig Bellamy or breaks Craig Bellamy's record of most um, of goals scored with different Premier League clubs it's going to be it's one of those little uh, tidbits to watch out for with uh, for the rest of the season that's a fantastic bit of trivia I'm trying to think off the top of my head so Tottenham, Liverpool, Portsmouth, Villa, um, well Stoke. What, what would the other two uh, be? Southampton. Southampton, yep. And there's one more. Is it QPR? I uh, QPR oh, won Premier League no. at stage. Right. <laughs> we try not to do this live. Obviously, it could be all night. But that is a fantastic bit of trivia. I'll let me do my research and I'll get back to you on that one. But yeah, if Burnley would be the eighth. So there's one more missing. I don't know if it's Norwich. Maybe I don't know. We'll have to have a look. But in, in terms of that area of the table, Burnley, um, we didn't quite have a six-pointer at St Mary's last night, but it was still an important game between Southampton and Palace. On is even, but the talking point would have been red cards. And, you know, there was some that might have been, but there was one that definitely was, not because of what, you know, a robust tackle, but because of getting tackled, I guess. Wilson oh, sort of lost it, didn't he? Bit of petulance. And then even more so again in front of the referee. So... Technically, he only has himself to blame, but does he need more protection? Um, no, I uh, protection. That's some. That's that's a whole. That's a whole different debate. I honestly thought that first yellow card was a bit harsh. I, it wasn't a. It wasn't like a full on uh, like a slap or a punch or a shove or anything. He just basically just batted, just basically batted an arm away. I, I think that was a bit harsh for the yellow card, which then leads to him being booked for uh, the second book for sarcastic sarcastically clapping get out get out on the third time um so if it wasn't for a bit of a soft yellow card then he doesn't get a second yellow card so on so forth but in terms of protection that comes down to your idea of if whether or not football's um gone soft and the um, kind of football you want to see played like I've always been one for a bit, a bit of physicality in football so to so if you were, if you were to ask me I think no he should you know man up and man up and deal with it he's not it's not as if he's actually getting um you know from a standing start getting his leg actually swiped from swiped from underneath him it's just a little just a little bit of of uh, for physical barge, whereas someone else you might ask is who prefers a nice, gentle passing, um, passing football might say, no, that's he's he, absolutely he's being he's being kicked to death. So per, personally, for my side, no, I think what's going on is is just about fine. But it it depends who you ask whether or not he, he deserves quite unquote protection. Yeah, I don't think can you really offer protection to players in this day and age. I mean, like I say, unless you're going to start booking everyone, you're going to get to the point where there's no one left on the pitch because everyone's accumulated too many uh, too many yellow cards isn't it so you don't really want the game going that way but you know Gary Lineker said on match of the day last night that Zahar almost had to take it as a mark of respect because defenders fear him now is there an element of truth in that? Um, yeah I, th- I think there's some element of element of, tr- element of truth in that you've just see, you can just see the um uh, the the way he plays and how important and how important he is to his team that absolutely teams fear him you know if you can close him down then you basically close the rest of the team down so yeah absolutely i can i can see why i can see why he'd say that um did you see um ralph's i can't be bothered to say surname his comments a little bit barbed towards mark hughes about how former managers haven't been able to spot talent i think the fact that 
um, Ralph has been more prepared to sort of play younger players, and it's like, well, if Hughes had done that, Southampton might not have been in the mess that they currently did find themselves in when he took the job. Um, yeah, yeah, to, yeah, to some extent, I think. Every, basically, every regime doesn't like the regime that came before it, especially if you're in a in a bad place as you as you are with Southampton you the the situation we're in now it's not because of me it's because of the regime before so so every so every new manager's uh gonna gonna come in and say that so I'm not exactly surprised uh surprised surprised by his comments no yeah I think that's fair enough actually it's always the case of well it's not my fault like I'm trying to trying to get us out of this mess but um not in a mess of wolves you almost forget they're a promoted team because they're flying they're seventh the best of the rest in the inverted commas Seven goals in the last two league outings. So they certainly hit a purple patch in terms of goal-scoring form. But can they go the distance and actually earn what could well now be a Europa League place? Let's assume that a small club doesn't win the FA Cup. It's sort of everything's going to, to type. So can Wolves be the best of the rest? Um. Yeah, absolutely. They they can. I don't, I don't see any reason why, you know, why they couldn't. If you, look, if you look at the teams around them, Everton... Seemed to be a, on a bit of a bad patch under under Marco Silva for some reason. He for some reason he's getting pressure, and then you look at the you look at the team rest of the teams around them. It's Watford, Bournemouth, City, West Ham. No no teams that are gonna really uh, that are really gonna impress you on a, on a major basis. So yeah, Wolves the way they're going, absolutely. Why not? And it'd be a fantastic achievement for them, and it would be, and it would be deserved for them because it then goes to show other teams that you know these things these things can happen. And if you stick to you know, this is a message to Mrs. Fulham, if you stick to what got you promoted, then absolutely you can go and do very well in the check. You don't have to be uh, fighting for your life um, in your in your first season, if you do things the right way, then you can absolutely go up and fly through, fly through the fly through the rest of the table. What do you make of uh, Nuno Spirito Santo as a manager? I mean, if Tottenham do lose Poch in the summer, I would love it if they went for him. I would make him my personal number one replacement. So, do you think he's got sort of the managerial credentials to manage a big club eventually, or will that big club be Wolves? At an at an interesting shout. Uh, all this that, that's that's the first time I've actually heard his name being brought up for one of the quote unquote bigger teams because it's you know for the last two or three years it's been Eddie Howe's been the the, the man in waiting. So whenever one of the big team uh, loses their manager, it's it's meant to be Eddie Howe taking his job. Absolutely. But now you say it, uh, Santo. Yeah, why not? I think if. If he goes and does this sort of thing next year, because we don't want to be brought in with, because uh, Tony Pulis with Stoke and <laughs> Phil Brown with Hull did this sort very of thing. True, very that true. first season, if that first season of the Premier League did really well, but it's I'm not comp- I'm not comparing the styles of play by any means. But it's it's not a, okay. You could do this once, but now once we've had a season of watching you play in the Premier League, you've had your year to adapt. You know, to some extent, you're taking us by surprise because we haven't seen this style of play before. It's always about the second season that we start to judge. So if he does a similar thing next year and he, and he ends no, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, then yeah, absolutely. I, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't why you shouldn't want to link his name to one of the quote-unquote bigger bigger clubs. But at the same stage... If there's a, a quote, if there's a project going on at Molyneux, you know we've seen that they're, they're developing the stadium. If they're going to, you know, invest this money, they're going to make in the Premier League into a decent academy because you think that's that should be a really good hotbed for young talent in Wolverhampton. If that's going to be their way of bringing things through, then yeah, why not want them? Why not maybe turn what uh, not what not not Watford Wolves into one of the into one of those big clubs? Either way, I think yes, yeah, Santo could be could be the man to do it. Yeah, and the team they beat, West Ham, why are they so inconsistent? You know, they had a good win against Arsenal the other week, dumped out the cup, smashed to pieces by Wolves. It's, I mean, you would never bet on them, would you? Because you just don't know what you're going to get from one week to another. No, and uh, yeah, I just, I, I just can't, I can't tell West Ham from from one week to the other. Uh, they've sort of gone under the radar a bit. There's not been that 
they haven't they've been very quiet this season it's very different to as it was the last cup the last couple of years when there was there was all that fighting uh with the board and you know oh we're not getting used to the stadium so on and so forth and maybe it's just west ham are just sort of setting back and don't want to maybe because they're not trying hard so to, i don't i don't want to sort of disparage or say anything, say anything too uh, libelous about them, but maybe they're just not trying hard. So we're just a bit shocked by by these shock results. You know, when they come along, I, I, don't know, I honestly can't, I can't put uh, words to it by, by West Ham as I can't with a lot of the clubs this season. Everton, they um, beat Huddersfield. Obviously, they were dumped out of the cup by Mills. They bounced back. What do you make of Marco Silva as a manager? Because he seems to either be I don't know if it's like Emperor's New Clothes. Some, sometimes he's sort of lauded as this new continental talent and other times he's sort of lauded as a bit of a snake oil salesman and he sort of talks a good game but flats to deceive. So what do you make of the job he's doing on Merseyside? I'll be pretty honest. I've never, I've never been impressed by my by Marco Silva with anything he did when he first came when he first came into um, uh, the Premier League with Hull. Um, I'll, I'll cut him some slack because he was Hull, but at the same time, they didn't win a single point away from home, and he took and he still got them relegated. I don't care how he you know he imp- uh, improved their style of play; he still got them relegated. When Roy Hodgson, uh, this is my rant time. When Roy Hodgson took over Fulham in two thousand and eight, I and he kept us up. I don't remember one single article saying, "Oh, Roy Hodgson, he's the next big thing. He's you know he can manage he can manage an Arsenal," which for some reason was being touted by Marco Malco Silva when he was relegated with Hull. Then he went to Watford, and within four months, he wanted to go, he wanted to go and join to Everton. He just seems a bit of a disloyal character, and he seems a bit of a mercenary to me. Because one, because after he took the job at Everton, I think he'd been at four different clubs: Olympiacos, Hull, Watford, Everton in the four clubs in the space of 18 months. He just seems a bit of a mercenary to me. And if I'm being brutally honest, their style of play doesn't jump out at me on the screen. It's, you know, I'm not tuning in specifically to see Everton. I'm not excited by their, by their style of play. So it, on the, in the grand scheme of things, I'm hugely not a fan of Marco Silva. If, you know, Quite frankly, I'm glad. I'm glad he's under pressure because maybe finally everyone's starting to work out that he's not all that great as I didn't think he was all that great to begin with. Do you know what? You've got that bang on the money and I couldn't agree with you more. Like I say, it's just like Emperor's New Clothes and he's lauded as this sort of manager who's getting tipped for big jobs, but he's not a loyal character, is he, from what we've seen? And he sulked at Watford because he couldn't go to Everton and then they just binned him off. So, yeah, I I think he's sort of been shown up really because Everton had this big dream of hitting the top six this season and they're not going to hit the top six like in the next two or three years I don't think they're they're cut out for that at all if anyone's going to do it it will be Wolves so I think the value of silver has very much plummeted in terms of um, managers though Huddersfield they've obviously named a new one Jan Siewert um, the third manager to come from Borussia Dortmund two Um, you've got Wagner Falker Siewert so obviously this pipeline we talk about German um Clubs buying British players. We've now got English clubs getting young German managers. So there's obviously a bit of a talent swap, but no new manager bounced straight away at Huddersfield. But again, it's almost an impossible job for him, really, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I'm sort of somewhat curious as to what Huddersfield's line of thinking was when appointing him, because this is his first um, senior uh, senior appointment, um, you know, managing a senior team. So the, it's a, it is a bit of a big jump, as we found out with Kit Simmons at Fulham. When you jump from managing the kids to managing the grown men's team, it is a bit of a jump. So maybe there's some thinking of we're just going to surrender the rest of the season. We're down. Give him six months to sort of familiarise himself with the squad and go for a full charge and go for a full charge when we're in the championship next season because there's no way that he was brought in uh, purely um to purely to get them out of relegation otherwise they would have gone with one of the relegation specialists like a Tony Pulis or a Big Sam so this is obviously a forward thinking appointment and whether or not it works out you know we won't find out for another for another 18 months or two years yeah it's not about this season is it it's about how they 
bounce back or if they can bounce back and how he can work in the championship and I think they all sort of brace themselves for the impact of relegation and uh, I think that's just um, you know petering out really like I said a couple of weeks back when Burnley appointed Brian Laws what was it like nine years ago you know they just knew that there was nothing worth getting in a big name manager trying to do a salvage job but it's, the work's already done so um, not good news for Huddersfield fans but you know I think it's not something that's unexpected either so um, where are we? Yeah, about 53, 54 minutes in, so just need to wrap things up. Um, we whistled through the last sort of, uh, yeah, 53, 54 minutes. So Arsenal, they moved up to fourth after winning against Cardiff, and it's been obviously a difficult week for Neil Warnock and his men. So as a market respect, we're not really going to sort of um, touch on that game too much because I think, you know, it's, like I say, it's not really been a, a great week for Cardiff. So in terms of off-pitch action, we're obviously hitting the transfer deadline. And like you said, off offline, it's not been a great window but in terms of not just today, but over the course of the last month, has anything caught your fancy in terms of good business? Um, in terms of good business, no, there's no, not. You're right. There's, <laughs> no, there's not a single signing where I could see right that's going to turn their season around, or oh, they were very good to get get him off the books. The uh, I suppose the biggest signing of this of this window has been Gonzalo Higuain to Chelsea. Um, just because he's one of the names that's been linked with the Premier League for so long that finally we actually get to see it right. Can he do it? Uh, maybe he'll be, you know, the bit long. Cause I think he's because he's I think he's in his thirties now. So maybe he'll be yeah. one of these. Um, uh, uh, he he won't be as great, you know, as as he has been in his previous year. say, oh, he wasn't all that good, all that good a player after all. So. Higuain, the fact that Gonzalo Higuain to Chelsea is the biggest. It, it just shows. Um, it's it's not been, it's not been the greatest of trans, transfer windows as, as a whole. If if we're if we're being if we're being brutally honest, and to be fair, you know, there's this, there's this talk about cha- about getting rid of the January transfer window. Maybe this is club's way of protesting and saying, right, we're not going to do any big business because we don't want this thing to happen anyway. So maybe next year, maybe next year we won't even have a January transfer window just because of how bad this one's been. That's an interesting concept, actually. Do you think that could work? The Premier League clubs are only allowed to buy in that off season, so you got from say June the first to August the first or something like that. Before, let's say, before the Premier League starts again. Could that work when you're literally locked into that's all you've got and it's a real test of management? There's no January escape route or, you know, emergency signings. Do you think that would work or make it the Premier League better? Um, better, better as a point of view. But yeah, absolutely, I'd go for it because I've been saying for a while that um, the way to fix a problem shouldn't be to go out and buy something. You, if, if you have an academy... So this maybe is a Premier League thing because I know the academy systems aren't the greatest when you go down the leagues. But Premier League academies should be able to cope. Um, yeah, should be able to cope and have enough players uh, to f- to fill the void. So if you do get you know Harry Kane, you know Harry Kane gets injured, rather than going out and trying to sign a forward, bring up the um, bring up the kid from the academy. I have no idea who it is. I'm sure you you'll know who the who the replacement is. Um, being a Spurs fan, but yeah, just bring up the convey bring up the conveyor belt. That's what we want that as fans is to get the academy kids a go. So rather than going out and spending. Um, I'll get I'll get an example. Bournemouth went and signed Chris Meppham from Brentford for about twenty million. As much as I think that's a good that's a good bit of business, I think it would have been better if Bournemouth had dipped into the academy and said, "Right, John Smith or whatever academy academy player X, right, you're going to be making the jump up to the first team now." So I, 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 I personally that that's the way I would want things going forward. So that's why I think we there's there's the argument to get rid of the January transfer window because it forces managers. To go into the academy, yeah, I think that's a very uh, solid argument you make. And also, it, if we touch on our sort of point about academy stars going over to Germany, they'd get the minutes that they would would sort of desire. So it would be a win-win, and I think it would be a better test of coaches because you're not just sort of relying on dare I say sort of financial doping all that. It's a real real test of right. You know, I've got this nucleus of players for eight months, eight nine months, and it's like, what can I actually do with them? And I think that would be a real test of who are good managers, and you know, it would alleviate or eradicate the checkbook manager um, that we see in this day and age. So, very good concept. I like it. Where it happens, though, I don't know. One last thing I need to push you for. Loser pool pick of the week. Have you got a guaranteed loser for me this week? 
Yes, I think I hinted at it earlier. Given their form without their main man and given his red card earlier, uh, Crystal Palace are guaranteed losers against Fulham this week. And I can't believe I'm saying can't believe I'm saying that given our away record this year. But wow. yeah, Crystal Palace guaranteed losers against Fulham. I'm going to go for Arsenal to lose away at Manchester City. City, they're going to be something of a wounded beast on Sunday. Obviously, they've lost to uh, Newcastle on Tuesday night. They can't afford to lose two in a row. Not only that, but they play before Liverpool. So they can get the gap down to two points temporarily, albeit for, what, 24 hours, with Liverpool playing on Monday night. So, you know, usually it's Liverpool playing first and asking questions of Manchester City. This time, it's their way round. So I don't think uh, City will um, be in a generous mood. They'll be out to, uh, to kill off Arsenal. And I think it will be Arsenal who are my guaranteed losers. And that's about it for uh, tonight. Just need to thank Matthew on behalf of myself. It's been an absolute pleasure to have him on as always. I'm sure we'll do it again soon. And I hope you listen to me again soon. So with that in mind, my name's Dan Tracy. This is a Real Football Cast in association with Loser Paul. And until next time, goodbye. Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.